Hi, welcome to Lambert Park Church. Our vision is life with God for the world. Our mission is to invite everyone to follow Jesus with us through redemptive community, intentional discipleship, and everyday mission. We're so glad you're here. Stay tuned for the podcast coming right up. Uh, Welcome. If you are new with us, my name is Scott Anderson, and I uh, appreciate Rod's uh, kind words today. He's whispering with us. Rod, do you want to say thank you for that, your kindness, for your prayers for us? Um, One announcement I'll make before we dive in and pray. Um, At the end of the service, there's something a little special for everybody today. Uh... Little honey pots. Um, Lucy uh, dreamed up this delightful idea, uh, and it's for everybody. It's not just for those who have born children. Uh, they have little adorable little like notes on the top, and so everyone gets to walk away with a little honey pot today. A little bit of love on a day that is. Uh, I mean, Mother's Day is it's it, it's a, it's a hallmark holiday, right? It's not a gospel holiday. And we honor uh, our mothers and pray for mothers because that's a, a vital role in the world. But I also just want to bestow God's kindness upon all today. Um, and I recognize we, we just sang a song a few ago about God's name being good. You are good. You are good. You'll never let me down. And I want to just nuance that because God will always be good. That doesn't mean he will fulfill all of our dreams that we have, have, right? I know anything that the church needs to be honest, that we all have things that we had hoped for, prayed for, anticipate, that don't always come. But God is seeking his goodness in our lives, and we can trust him even when those things aren't delivered to us. I know Mother's Day for some is that, right? It's a deep ache. And God is good. In that, there's a line, um, I, I referenced it a few times when we were studying Philippians a few years ago by Timothy Chester, a wonderful British uh, preacher and theologian, and he said, um, in all of our pleasures, Jesus is better. In all of our suffering, Christ is enough. Come back to that often. In all of our pleasures, Jesus is better. In all of our suffering, Christ is enough. So with that, let's pray as we come to God's word today. Living Jesus, you who are Lord today, our crucified God, who reigns today at the right hand of the Father, by your spirit you are present with us. In your grace, we come again as a people called by your grace to to seek you, to listen to you, to follow you, you purposed to make yourself known through speaking. Speaking Christ, the living word, the eternal word of God, and speaking through your written word. We ask again today, just as you inspired the Apostle Peter in the writing of his letter, that you would inspire us in the hearing of this letter. You would bear your fruit in us, God. We just we bow before you not only for ourselves, but for every woman and man in this room with us and others online with us right now. We say together and we ask together that you would give us this day 
our daily bread. All of us, those who feel great need around us, whether we know their need or not, Lord, we just bow before you for one another. Would you come and breathe your life upon the men and women sitting in front of us and behind us and around us? Those who are online with us, at home, maybe wishing they were here in the room, come breathe your grace upon us today and lead us to yourself. Amen? <sighs> All right, well, as, as has been said, today is a unique Sunday. Um, first and foremost, because it's our final Sunday in the, uh, the letter of First Peter. We've been in this letter for nine months, eight months technically, but with a pre-series on the story of Simon Peter. It's been such a rich year. I did not anticipate it. Thank you again to Janet who in the middle of a week of study last summer said, why don't you teach First Peter? To which I said, no, it's too complicated. <laughs> but I took it to heart and listened and came out the other side saying, okay, I think God's in this. So, um, so today we come to the, the final passage. And also, as has been said, uh, today is my last Sunday before I start a three-month sabbatical, uh, which begins later today. And that is a big deal too for me. Um, as you know, I wasn't here last Sunday because Janet and I celebrated our anniversary by getting COVID, uh, which was lovely. And, um, but we're healthy again and glad to be back with you. And thank you to Daniel McDougall for stepping in last week and teaching First Peter unexpectedly. Uh, and thank you for those back at the tech desk who fought fiercely to address the chaos with our projector last week. Uh, and it did get resolved and it was a bad connection. So, ah, crazy. But Daniel persevered, and you did too, I think. Some of you probably were just totally frustrated and lost. And that's okay. That's okay. It's like when you come to read your Bible on your own, right? In your own devotion. Some days are holy moments. Some days you say, I don't know what's happening here. And some sermons are like that too, maybe. And it's not always the fall of the preacher. It could be the technology too. So sometimes it's the preacher. Today we come to the final three verses of 1 Peter. So 1 Peter 5, verses 12 to 14. The kind of verses that we often just kind of blow past, don't really linger on, and yet are often full of grace. So let's listen together to Peter's final words. Uh, on my, it's page 1112, if you're looking, if you have my Bible. So, uh, with the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I've written to you briefly, Briefly is always a bit of a joke when it comes to the length of New Testament letters, um, but common statement. Um, with the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, obviously, this is not a primary text in Peter's letter, right? Um, if you're just showing up today, you have missed so much. We've, this is literally week 17 in this letter. Um, but that doesn't mean that these concluding verses have nothing to contribute, right? We just declared uh, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, which means there is something here for us to hear, something that God has for us today that we need to hear and know 
and embrace. And I don't need or want to complicate this this morning. It's a simple three verses. So I just want to offer a few reflections on each person that Peter references in his concluding greetings, and then a word on his concluding declaration. If you were listening there, you'll notice Peter explicitly references three people. Um, First, Silas. Second, she who is in Babylon. And third, Mark. Each a window into something that mattered for the Apostle Peter and those to whom he was writing, and I hope for us as well. So first, Peter mentions Silas. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly. Some of your translations, if you have the ESV, the name is Silvanus. Um, It's no big deal. Silas is Silvanus. Just two versions. One a more Latinized version of the Greek, Silas. Doesn't matter. What matters isn't bound up in what version of his name we say. What matters is who he is and what he brings to the community. Now, according to Peter, Silas is a faithful brother, a faithful brother in Christ. I love how Peter always used family language. Jerry Brower didn't start this. God did. (laughs) Uh, We're family. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. But Peter goes beyond that. He says Silas is a faithful brother. And consequently, he is someone that Peter, the apostle, trusts and wants the churches who are receiving this letter to also trust. Why? Because as Peter himself says, with the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you. Now, over the centuries, many have interpreted this to mean that Silas was Peter's scribe, his amanuensis, I think is the Greek word, which is common in the first century uh, practice of letter writing. But over the last number of years, a growing consensus now um, is that Silas wasn't as much Peter's scribe as he was his courier, the one who carried this letter to the Christians in the scattered northern regions of Asia Minor, which also likely entailed that he read it to them and potentially also clarified any points of confusion. Maybe he had, he had sat with Peter in the writing of this letter and he knew there was a certain part that was especially for Rod to hear. And so he'd lean over and say, Rod. Or he knew that Andrew was going to be visiting, so he knew that he'd look over at Andrew. And, and, and he, he was there to communicate this letter to them. We see something similar in Romans 16. Phoebe is thought to have been the carrier of the letter of the Romans to the Christians in Rome. Now, I suspect most of us don't, when I say Silas, you don't go, oh, I know Silas, which is kind of unfortunate because he's actually referenced in so many places in the New Testament. We just might not really realize it. Um, he is the Apostle Paul's traveling companion uh, in Asia Minor in Greece. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 19 references him. He, and get this, he is the co-author, the co-author of First and Second Th- Thessalonians. Look it up. First Thessalonians 1 verse 1, 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. There's a number of references to Silas in the book of Acts. In Acts 16, we read about Paul and Silas in jail, worshiping. Janet did a painting of it. It's awesome. Um, Acts 15, Silas is mentioned repeatedly when the Jerusalem council comes together. He's repeatedly named as a trusted leader in the church. But he's not this big name, 
is he? As you think about the men and women who stand out to you, who've been etched indelibly into the history of the early church through the New Testament, most of us don't think of Silas. We don't list him off. But the truth is, according to the Apostle Peter, the vital ministry of this letter, which we have needed, have we not? And which the church in Peter's day needed so much, the vital ministry of this letter would, which ultimately became scripture, would not have happened if not for the active faith and faithfulness of Silas. And I love this. I love this tiny but epic reference to a man named Silas that most of us haven't ever known. Because it's an affirmation that God's ministry is never solely bound up in just one person or limited to one person, someone like Peter. Peter's much needed pastoral ministry, encouraging suffering and discouraged Christians in our day. Does anyone know a suffering and discouraged Christian in our day? Yes. Peter's vital pastoral ministry, encouraging suffering and discouraged Christians in his day through correspondence involved and required the trustworthy participation of others. And here specifically a man named Silas, which is a word of encouragement to us that God's ministry is never bound up in or limited to a holy few. Instead, it is bound up in all of us, invites all of us, all who are in Christ, actively working together, bringing something to the table through whom? Through which? Through which? God. God extends his life-giving, rescuing, restoring, encouraging ministry to his people. Whether we're talking about representing the gospel to a world that doesn't know what to do with Jesus or the gospel or the word of God, or we're talking about building up, encouraging, shepherding the church, God's ministry on earth today requires not just someone with a seminary education, but the whole body coming together, bringing our faith and our faithfulness, our gifts and even our weaknesses together, humbly in service of one another. Which honestly is what gives me great peace to step away for three months in confident hope that God has so much that he will do here among you, in and among you through the gifts and the faith and the faithfulness of many, each Sunday and far beyond. Next Sunday, Aaron, our youth pastor, Aaron, beloved, uh, is going to introduce a 10-week series called Fruitable. It's a study on the fruit of the Spirit, how God wants to grow in us and grow us together in the character of Christ. There's a, a few of them. Props to Lucy for bringing it there. I love that. Um, and each Sunday, a different member of our sabbatical teaching team is going to step up here with fear and trembling. Some might be shaking and bring what God has been teaching them from his word. This is some of them. Uh, Lewis Chen's also in their company. John Barry is going to be it. Um, and I, I want to say to you today, More than just an introduction, I want to say to you, as Peter said of Silas, as Paul said of Phoebe in Romans 16, I commend to you each of these brothers and sisters. They are your faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. And to quote the Apostle Paul, his commendation of Phoebe in Romans 16, he says, receive them in the Lord in a way worthy of God's people. But with that too, I wonder if this is a moment, if this is a moment for us as a church to uniquely and intentionally celebrate the Silases among us. 
in our lives and in our church, those whose quiet and faithful contributions are often unnoticed and unaffirmed because apostles like Peter or maybe pastors like Scott often get noticed and thanked. But people like Silas deserve it as much as anyone. Yes? So let's do this. Maybe right now you can think of someone who's been a, a Silas in your life or who is whose quiet contribution has actually been such a gift, a vital gift in your life, but maybe not named and affirmed. So let's raise a glass to Silas, a faithful brother who helped bring God's word to a community in need. All right, jump with me to Peter's reference to Mark, it's the last of the three references. The end of verse 13, he says, and so does my son Mark, he sends greetings, that is. It's just a, the quickest reference, but there's something so honestly encouraging because this Mark, and so does my son Mark, send greetings. This Mark is the Mark that some of us know as John Mark. Does that flag for some people? Uh, we read about John Mark in the book of Acts as a young man and a young Christian, uh, in Acts 12, the Christians gather, Peter's in jail. We'll talk about this story later in the summer when I'm back. No stealing it, Daniel. Uh, in, in Acts 12, the, the Christians are gathered in the home of John Mark's home. He's a young man, it's his mother's home. And, but in the next scene, John Mark goes out as a part of Paul's team, maybe as a protege, opportunity apprentice, an opportunity to grow. A bit of an honor, I would think, to be invited along with the Apostle Paul. But just one chapter later, Acts 13, John Mark goes home. And not because he had a prior commitment, but because he gives up. He deserts. And it's significant enough of a failure that when given the opportunity a few chapters later or a few months or seasons later, the Apostle Paul refuses to take him along in a new opportunity. I don't want someone like that on my team, I guess. But thank God for Barnabas. Uh, Barnabas, another trusted leader in the church, often a collaborator with Paul, decides to give John Mark another chance and takes him on, takes him on another gospel endeavor. And John Mark seemingly at this point leans in and stays on and grows up, grows up to become a faithful follower of Jesus who ultimately is an encouragement to others, becomes an encouragement to struggling and discouraged Christians decades later. So much so that the apostle Paul ultimately came to value him and affirms him in three of his later letters and then here we find the Apostle Peter, a decade or more later, including John Mark's greetings to, at the close of his letter. And I don't really know why, except that Peter must have known that it would have meant something to the scattered, discouraged Christians around the northern regions of Asia Minor. Maybe as a reminder to them and to us that the grace of God is real. Amen. 
that the grace of God is real, that the grace of God worked out in community together can bring about real change in people's lives, real change that might at one point have seemed totally unlikely, unexpected, undeserved. When a Barnabas or a community of Barnabases, a Barnabai, grab the hand of a John Mark and stay with him, stay the course with him, unlikely things can happen. Unexpected things can happen. Gospel things can happen. Change, transformation, renewal. Prodigals can become pillars. Addicts can become sponsors. Dropouts can become mentors and leaders. Deserters can become apostles, right? We might have forgotten that by now at this point in the series, 19, 20 weeks later. But this is Peter's story, isn't it? Peter himself, the apostle who writes this letter, inspired by the Spirit. Maybe he considered it, maybe this is why he considered John Mark his spiritual son, because Peter himself was once the unfaithful one, the deserter, whom Jesus came back for, invited him again, reinstated him, restored him, recommissioned him, and ultimately over time, made him faithful. Thank God for God's grace and for a Barnabas and for this reference to, to Mark for us, sending greetings to the church because it's an announcement of hope to you and to me. It's an announcement of hope, isn't it, to the John Marks among us. Maybe you feel like you're a John Mark. You have messed it all up. You were on the path. You got baptized last year, and now today, look at you. Maybe you're thinking that. But here's a story of someone whose story's like that, and yet God put them on a new path and brought them along, and they grew up into a gift to the church. It's a word of hope to the John Marks among us, maybe the John Mark in all of us. And it's also a word of hope to us when we are tempted to give up on another or ourselves. All right, so that's Silas, and that's Mark. Now come with me to Peter's mention in the middle of this, to, in verse 13, to she who is in Babylon. It's obscure. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings. I'll say right off the top that it seems clear that Babylon was an ancient Christian code word for Rome. And you need use code words when it's dangerous to say the truth. They use this code word. We see it in the New Testament for Rome, Babylon, in days when it was not safe to speak negatively or critically. No, it's not even a word, is it? Negatively about the empire, critically. Thank you. Wow, I'll take some water there. Raise a glass of Silas. Um, in a way, <laughs> this, this little reference to Babylon pulls us again into the hard reality of the context of this letter, of Peter's day and of the day of those to whom he was writing. As we've discussed at every turn in this study, 1 Peter was written in hard days, written in a time where allegiance to Jesus was increasingly at odds with the ways of the empire, a culture shaped by the worship of Rome and Rome's gods. And it made being a Christian difficult. 
Faithfulness to Jesus in the public square increasingly came at a cost. If you owned a business and your spouse became a Christian, you might lose contracts. If you held public office and it was known that you became a Christian, you might lose your privilege and opportunity to participate in public discourse. If your slave became a follower of Jesus, your household might have started to feel difficult because they're not honoring the God of your household, which contributes to the flourishing of Rome. That's an act of rebellion against the empire. So we don't want a slave to be a Christian. This was a hard time. As one historian explains, Romans living in this area, that is the area where Peter and those to whom he writes lived, Romans living in this area viewed the burgeoning Christian movement with a high degree of suspicion, misunderstanding, and occasional intolerance and persecution. There's a famous piece of ancient Roman graffiti that highlights this. It's known as the Alexemenos Graffito. And I acknowledge, as it says there, it comes from 200 AD, which is well past six, the 60s of the first century in which Peter wrote this letter, but it's a window into the very real experience of Christians in Rome that went on for decades. As I said, it's the Alexemenos Graffito because the scrawl inscription reads in Greek, Alex worships his God. And as you can see, maybe some of you have seen this before, the sketches of someone named Alex worshiping a crucified man who has the head of a donkey. This is actually regarded as the earliest known pictorial representation of the crucifixion of Jesus and him being worshiped as divine. That. All evidence suggests that this is something like bathroom stall graffiti etched on a wall in a Roman palace in the early centuries of the Christian movement intended to mock a Christian coworker or a fellow slave in the palace named Alex. The donkey aspect of it feels really weird to us, but at the most basic level, it seems to fit the great dishonor and shame that Roman culture associated with crucifixion. To them, to worship a crucified God was as ridiculous as worshiping a donkey. And I share this not to introduce a new study on onolatry, donkey worship, but as a historical confirmation that Christianity in the first centuries was not a path to privilege and honor, but just the opposite. It involved a costly obedience that often brought suffering and slander, dishonor and misunderstanding. Showing up in the bathroom stall at your workplace and that's up about you. This was what Christians in this time experienced in their public life. It was something Peter himself experienced. The apostle who tradition tells us would end up crucified upside down for his allegiance to Jesus. Which is why Peter writes at the heart of his final greetings between Silas and Mark, she who is in Babylon chosen together with you sends you her greetings. Remember, Babylon is ancient Christian code for Rome. We see the same in the book of Revelation. She who is in Babylon, she who is in Rome, the center of the pagan empire, the place of true exile, the source of, of persecution, which likely evoked something hard and heavy for us, but would have been received with incredible comfort. This reminder at the close of this letter that the apostle Peter writes from Rome himself. He's not off on a holiday. He's not in the comforts of the Holy Land, Jerusalem. He is in the place, the source 
of exile and hostility, a place as adverse to the Christian gospel and faith in Jesus as any place. But as his words reveal, Peter is not alone. He is a part of a community. He's a part of a church in Rome who together send their greetings. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings. Which meant for Peter's readers, you who are suffering today because of your allegiance to Jesus, you are not alone. You who have chosen or are choosing to live a costly obedience in allegiance to Jesus, you are not alone. You who face the cross this week in a decision that you are making or in this season as you ask yourself, should I do this or that? Should I prioritize myself or another? Should I go the way everyone's telling me to go or go the way that Christ, I sense Christ is calling me? You are not alone. You who cling to the hope of Christ when your dreams are not being fulfilled in this life. You are not alone. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings. And I need to say, if we can step back from the details of these three verses, that this is why we have spent this year in 1 Peter. Why we have, I have needed 1 Peter and will continue to. Why I am convinced that God was speaking through Janet in leading us into this deep immersion in 1 Peter this year. Because as much as ever, we are living in a day when faithfulness to Jesus requires a costly obedience. Though the truth is, it always has. We just haven't felt it or been willing to admit it. And it's hard. It is hard. Following Jesus in the way of the cross is hard. It's a cross. And it can feel incredibly lonely and not what we bargained for which is exactly why we need 1 Peter to teach and remind us that the signature of Jesus has always been the cross, that suffering is not the exception in the Christian life, and that bearing the cross is not to be avoided or prayed away, but embraced together with hope. Because this is the way of Jesus. This is the signature of Jesus and the evidence of his power at work in us. Not rescue from suffering, but a capacity to bear the cross with hope. Our God is the God of the cross. Our crucified God, our crucified Lord, our crucified master. And it's the denial of this that leads many to abandon the faith today as it has in many eras. Because we've been taught and believed a lie that following Jesus is a straight path to glory. Getting everything that you hoped for. Jesus will give it to you. The world won't give it to you, but Jesus will give it to you. We have this, we've been taught this, we've shared this, we've memed it, we've posted it on, we've hashtagged it, we've believed it. That following Jesus is a straight path to glory. That this is what we should expect. But as Peter, the Apostle Peter, has borne witness to us in so many ways through his own life and now through this letter, the path to glory always comes 
through the cross, just as it did for Jesus. That's why Jesus says to us in Mark 8, verse 34, whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. And I think in Luke's version, he says, take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Which is heavy, hard to hear. And yet Peter says of this, this is the grace, the true grace of God. Listen to Peter. In his closing words, a closing piece in this letter, he says, with the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying to you that testifying that this is the true grace of God. All that he has taken us through, which is a stunning summary, a surprising summary to such a hard and heavy letter. Honestly, just teaching this letter, I pretty much burned out in March just from the weight of the gravity of the things we were talking about week after week. Right? In the midst of all the upheaval of our world, back-to-back Sundays on what do we do with governing authorities? What do we do with the history of the church's participation in slavery? What do we do with the history of the church's participation in the suffering of women? This has taken us to some hard places. And at the heart of it, Peter has endlessly talked about the suffering of Jesus. Go back and read through this letter and his repeated downbeat is not the hardship of our lives, but the suffering of our God for us. Peter actually, interestingly, never uses the language of Jesus' death or crucifixion, but suffering. He suffered. He suffered. He suffered for us. Our God has suffered for us. And yet reflecting on all this, Peter says to us, this is the true grace of God, that the God of the gospel The God that Peter knew and followed, the God who has chosen us in Christ, is a God who perfectly understands the sufferings and trials we face, not simply because he is with us, but because he himself, God himself, has suffered. Which, to be honest, through all the last year, the last few years have brought, and brought to light, in a world marked so deeply by injustice and suffering, more and more I find myself resonating with Peter's confession here, declaration that this is the true grace of God. That the God of the gospel is the God of the cross. Again, we've talked about this before. If you study other world religions, if you think of the Buddha, you see the picture of a happy, plump man sitting in blissful detachment from the suffering of the world. So many of the faith stories of our world are about negating suffering, standing at a distance from it, escaping it. But the story of the gospel, the God of the gospel is a God who has come and has suffered for the world. Who knows in his being, suffering, not just because he's with us, because he has suffered for us. This is the true grace of God in a hurting, broken, suffering world. And because of this, we are invited 
to live with real honesty and real hope. Real honesty about the mess. Real honesty about the struggle. Real honesty about the pain of it all. And real hope for God's grace to lead and sustain us through hard days, for God's grace to empower us to choose and walk a costly obedience, to live in the way of the cross, and for God to ultimately, through the cross, bring his glory, which now is a people who are able to live in the way of the cross. Is that not what our world needs right now? in the midst of all the screaming and the yelling about all the issues of the day, for the people of God to be a cruciform people, for the church of Jesus Christ to demonstrate the self-giving sacrifice of our God through our own prayers and posture and participation. In the end, this is the question and invitation of 1 Peter. Will we, like Peter, will I, will you, let the cross shape and define our lives? Not just our ultimate hope, but our lives. Will you let the cross shape and define your life, your relationships, your family engagement, your calling, your Monday. Because as Peter declares to us, this is the true grace of God. This is the evidence of God at work in us, our being empowered by God to choose and walk the way of the cross. For God's glory, for the sake of the world, and for our joy in him. Let's pray. I'll just give you a moment to speak your own response to God and then I'll lead us. Once again, Father, we just bow before you with gratitude for your word, that in your mercy and grace you don't call us to just buoy one another up with mantras of do better, but in your grace you speak by your spirit, through your word, in your community, again and again. We thank you, God, for the gift of this year in this letter, this long attentiveness to your living revelation and voice through a complicated letter in some complicated times. Thank you for helping us to listen this year. Thank you for the gift of your word to us and in it, your love for us.
And so, Lord, we say thank you today for your cross. Though we, like Peter and like John Mark, have all and do at times still desert, wander off, know what you've asked of us and say no or don't even answer and just go do our own thing. Lose sight of your grace, your hope, your goodness. But in your mercy, you come back and invite us again. You lift us up. And we thank you, God. Thank you for calling us again today to put our trust in you who have suffered for us. And with that, friends, I want us to invite us to take the Lord's Supper together. I hope that you have grabbed the elements. If you haven't, they're back at the table there. I hope when I return from my sabbatical, we have done away with uh, these little ones and we're handing it in person. Uh, we'll see. But let us take first the bread, the sound of God's people coming to Jesus. This is the body of Christ given for you. The real life of God that suffered for you. Receive it today from the crucified one. Let me take the cup which represents the blood of Christ making a new covenant with us through the sacrifice of our God through what he has done not what we have done receive it from Christ today with gratitude and faith let me read the words from 1 Corinthians 11 for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Oh, Jesus, in your mercy and grace, as you did for Peter, would you continue? We look to you with hope that you would continue to teach us the grace of the cross, the true grace of who you are, and to lead us and shape us and mark us with your cross. For your glory, God.